Open the Word of God, please, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and allow me a few minutes of introduction to the glorious text we have before us today in John chapter 1. The glory of God that I introduced to you and reminded you of in Isaiah chapter 6 should be the passion of your heart and the purpose for your life. What else are you living for? It is all vanity in comparison. I don't care how noble men may think it to be. It's all vanity in comparison to the glory of God and seeing it and delighting in it. It should be the passion of your soul to see the glory of God. God has chosen to reveal Himself in different ways. And we get to look at the most splendid way in a few minutes. But let's lead up to it and see that men who did not get to see Him like we get to see Him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, had a great passion for the glory of God. Men are passionate today about all kinds of foolish things. This past week, the NCAA had their basketball championship. It's difficult to even remember who was in the contest and who won it because it's all vanity. But this is not vanity, the reason we have assembled today. I want to read to you the beginning of the Bible, the opening text of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Everything that God made was for Himself, for His glory, and for His pleasure. That's why they exist. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, before that heaven and that earth, there was God. And the glory of God enfolding upon itself with wheels within wheels. And He created angels to give Him glory. And they had two wings to cover their ugly feet. And they had two wings to cover their eyes lest they look upon Him. And they had two wings to fly that they might keep His every commandment. The glory of God was infinitely perfect. Right. Majestically overwhelming. Glorious in splendor. No man, no mortal man could look upon it. And that's what existed before Genesis 1-1. And John 1 tells us that the Word was there in the beginning. And so we want to remember that. To think about this first verse. This earth that you put so much trust in for your garden, for your house, for breath and life and a tan, was nothing in comparison to what was before this verse, and that is the glory of God. There is a transcendent, infinite, independent being that we call Jehovah because He is, I am that I am. What confidence, what strength, what eternity, what independence are involved in those words. There was a man named Moses. And you can turn to Exodus chapter 3 briefly. There was a man that God revealed himself to a little more than anyone else he had revealed himself to in the first 2,500 years of the world's history. 
Moses came 2,500 years after creation, 1,500 years before Christ. So in 1500 BC, on the backside of the desert, he saw a burning bush. And from in that burning bush, a voice came and told him to take his shoes off because he was on holy ground. Exodus chapter 3. And there's an, a conversation takes place between the great God of heaven and Moses. And Moses asks in verse 13, what is his name? What shall I say unto them when I'm asked, what is the name of this God that sent you to us? And God said unto Moses in verse 14, I am that I am. And so Moses got one of his first glimpses of the glory of God. He saw a bush that was burning and wasn't being consumed. And he said, I think I'll turn aside and check this wonder out. If you'll read the context here, And he was told to take his shoes off because he was in the presence of infinite holiness. We can go a little further to Exodus chapter 34. And God has been speaking to Moses. The Bible describes it face to face. It was like face to face, like a man would speak to his friend. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 33, And till Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. As long as Moses was speaking to the children of Israel, he had to put a veil over his face. Verse 34, But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. And so Moses had to keep putting this veil on every time he came out to speak to the people of God because being in with God and the presence of God's glory and holiness, it was affecting Moses and God had chosen for it to affect him to make a lasting impression upon the children of Israel and to give us a wonderful comparison in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we don't have a veil. Exodus chapter 40. Moses finished all the work Bezalel doing the actual work. But Moses finished all the work of the tabernacle. And it tells us, verse 34, look at the last sentence of verse 33 that's only five words long. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is the glory of God. And the Lord is showing Himself to Moses a little more than He has other men. Even Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, even Enoch and Methuselah on earth, Enoch got to see the glory of God by being taken into heaven in the 365th year of his life. If we were to continue through the pages of Scripture, we would come to the last number of chapters of the book of Job. 
in the book of Job, first it was Elihu, the young man, who boasted of God and showed Job all the glory of God and settled the problems in Job's life with these simple words. God is greater than man. Elihu showed Job the glory of God. Then God came down in a whirlwind and showed Job his glory. And Job shut his mouth after that and had no more to say in the way of arguing with God being unrighteous in the way he was treating him. We can go further to Isaiah 6, which I read to you earlier. His train filled the temple. Smoke filled the house. Holy, holy, holy was cried by seraphim, seraphims in that place for the purpose. And God spoke as a trinity. Whom shall I send? Singular. And who will go for us? Plural. And each one of you in the singular need to answer. And all of us in the plural need to respond. Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we have a very graphic, difficult to comprehend description of the glory of God as fire enfolding upon itself and wheels within wheels and multiple sets of eyes and they don't have to turn when they go to do the glory of God and when they go to keep the commandments of God. God speaks and they move forward. They're not limited like our ridiculous automobiles and airplanes. You know, it takes the SR-71, a small state, to be able to turn around. They could just go forward and keep the commandments of God in the presence of God. We come to Daniel, and Daniel sees an angel that has come to give him understanding in Daniel chapter 10, and it says, all strength left Daniel. Now Daniel had seen a little bit of glory in his time. There has never been a king like Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel served right with him for many years. And his son, and his son's son. And he served with Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. He had seen glory. But when he saw an angel beside the river in Daniel 10, he had no strength. Because he was reflecting the glory of God. Now look back at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. What are you alive for today? Why are you taking in oxygen and sending out carbon dioxide? One little verse. Moses. Moses had got a taste of God's glory. Verse 18. And he said, Moses said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. What have you done this past week? Have you sought your own glory? Have you gloried in things that ought to be your shame? Have you gloried in things that cannot compare to the glory of God? Let's be like Moses. 
It's the most thrilling, the most fulfilling, the most exciting, the most satisfying purpose for a life is to seek the glory of God. It is your destiny. It is your purpose. It should be your legacy. That I and my house will seek the glory of God. I and my wife will seek the glory of God. I want to see the glory of God. There is a being, the like of which we cannot comprehend. We cannot imagine. We only have a few broad pen strokes in the Word of God to depict it for us. The Apostle Paul, when he visited the third heaven, came back and was under orders from that heaven that he could not speak the things that he had seen. And he only mentioned it to shut the minds and mouths of the Corinthians who were boasting in their visions. They had no vision compared to what Paul saw. Right Right here. Are you like Moses at all? Show me thy glory. We pray. I have tried to change the way we pray a little bit over the last year or two. We pray. Almighty God, glorify thyself to us and through us. Let men see the glory of God by our lives. But show it to us first. You have a passion for the glory of God. Your passion, if it's for anything else, is wasted effort. Stolen oxygen. A wasted and ruined life. Don't give it anywhere else first. Give it to God in seeking His glory. Don't let it be your children. Well, I'm like a mother bear about my children. Why would you want to put yourself in the dog family? Elevate your thoughts. The Lord Himself. That's why we're here today. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. God has chosen to reveal Himself to us better than He revealed Himself to Moses. A lot better than He revealed Himself to Moses. A burning bush. A shining face, a trembling, burning mountain. Are you kidding me in comparison to what we have? Hebrews, verse 1 of chapter 1. God, not Allah, not Buddha, not Vishnu, Jehovah. God, God, fire enfolding upon itself, wheels within wheels, high and lifted up, smoke filling a temple, his train filling the whole house, seraphim standing all around, worshiping the thrice holy being, a fire and an altar burning there, every man in his presence feeling like absolutely disgusting filth. God. The God of Genesis 1-1, the God of Exodus 33. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us 
by His Son. He never spoke to Israel by His Son. He never spoke to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, before the nation of Israel, by His Son. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things. The Son of God in His divine nature already owned all things, because He had already made all things, and without Him was anything made that was made. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. These were the last days addressed by the Apostle Paul in this epistle. They extended from the point, the turning of time as we know it, especially about the year 28 A.D. when the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized. Whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, in His divine nature as the Word of God. Who, being the brightness of His glory, who being the brightness, the brightness of His glory. Moses, I'm going to have to put my hand over you. Moses, you need to put a veil on your face. Moses, I'm going to show you a burning bush. Who being the brightness of His glory. And the express image of His person. Not a reflection The express image of God's person. Express in exact detail without any obscurity. Express. Plainly viewed and seen. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Being made. This man was made. Being made. So much better than the angels. As he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And what name did he obtain by inheritance? Read on with me for one more sentence. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son this day, Have I begotten thee? God's formal declaration to the universe, including all the angels, that Jesus of Nazareth was his son and declared to be so formally and officially by his resurrection from the dead, which was involved in his inheritance of being put on the holy hill of Zion. This is not his birth, not in this verse. This is his resurrection. This is when he got his inheritance. He didn't get his inheritance in his humiliation. He got his inheritance in his glorification, which followed his resurrection. Notice that we have the brightness of God's glory. We have the express image of God's person, and no one has had it before 2,000 years ago. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The glory of God. The greatness and beauty and majesty of God. Hardly describable. Hardly definable. The glory of God. The combination of the beauty and the power. The majesty and the purity of all of His attributes. And collected into one little word, glory. 
the glory of God. Colossians 1.15, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's dear Son, from the last two words of verse 13, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. God is invisible. We can't see Him. No man has seen Him. No man can see Him. No man will see Him. But we will see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can read about the character and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and in it is the image of the invisible God. Jesus and Philip had a conversation in John chapter 14. Look at it with me. John chapter 14. Jesus has said those words that you are very familiar with in verse 6. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him. And have seen him, seen the invisible God. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. We won't ask for another miracle. We won't ask for anything else if you'll show us the Father. Do you hear the sigh before I read verse 9? Do you hear the sigh from our poor Lord? What did he just say in verse 7? What is Philip asking in verse 8 after Jesus taught him in verse 7? But our Lord is full of grace and truth. And Philip gets a load of both right now in one verse. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And my introduction comes to an end. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 3. Let's start at verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom... The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, who is the image of God, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. That is a description of an honest minister. Verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And amen. John chapter 1 and verse 14. Who in here is like Moses this morning? And wants to see the glory of God. John chapter 1. John's prologue is very abrupt. He jumps from subject to subject. 
without explanation or transition. And it doesn't matter. It's a prologue. It's a summary. It's an introduction. He has introduced to us, early in this prologue, who He is speaking about. We read verse 14, and you should memorize this verse. You should love this verse. If you were to ask me, which verse do you love the most? Verse 13 or verse 14? I'd say you've asked me a hard question. When it comes to regeneration, I love verse 13 as one of the greatest texts in the Word of God to crush heresy and to tell us the truth. But when it comes to verse 14, it's dealing with something greater than my regeneration. It's dealing with the incarnation of Almighty God as a man on earth. Dwelling here and being visibly observed by others who wrote down the account of what He did and what He said that you and I might believe that God visited this planet 2,000 years ago in the man Christ Jesus and He's coming again for us very soon. And in between, we want to believe on Him, obey Him, love Him, and serve Him and look for His coming. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen and amen. That is our text for the next few minutes. I've introduced to you the importance of the glory of God. I have hinted to you that God has revealed His glory more fully than ever before in the history of the world up to 2,000 years ago. He has revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus of Nazareth. And this verse teaches us some precious things. It's easy to understand. There are no difficulties here unless you go to seminary and are ruined by men who want to follow the three G's. And that is the Greek Gnostic garbage. We want to follow the Holy Scriptures. And we're not going to depart from them. It is painful to study subjects like verse 13 and like verse 14. It is painful because any time that I leave the pages of Scripture and read the writings of men, I get information, I get declarations that are contrary to the Word of God. And it is so bad and it is so severe that I wander. I wander. W-A- and D-E-R, I wander in my house begging God, what am I missing? Why am I content with what you said? Where are they going? What are they saying? Why are they differing with your word? Why are they speculating? Why are they teaching something contrary to Scripture? If we just go by the words of verse 14, it's all simple. If we go by the words of verse 13, it's all simple. We know that regeneration is entirely apart from any human cooperation or assistance by the person himself or anyone else trying to get him born again. It's all entirely the monergistic, sovereign, independent, I will work of God. And in verse 14, Jesus of Nazareth, is the only begotten Son of God, 
because he is a single, solitary, unique, and only one that was ever birthed by a woman that was conceived and fathered and generated by him, by God himself. It's not because of any eternal generation or any oriental eastern Jewish understanding of the word father and son. Everybody knows what father and everybody knows what son begetting and generating means. And God did it through Mary. And it, had, it involved a woman. It had to have a woman. Because God sent forth his son made of a woman. Right. Is there any difficulty about understanding woman, father, son, Birth, beget, begotten. It's as simple as... And it's always been simple for all the people of God except the ones that went to seminary. Right. It says, and the Word. The first three verses, in particular, of this introduction to John's Gospel, tell us about the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's the Word. And so John opens up this 14th verse by jumping back to the subject of the Word because he has left it for at least four verses, 10 through 13, where he dealt with the depravity of man and the division in the human race because of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are born again and why some believed on Him and others did not believe on Him. He has taken that aside for about four verses and he just comes right back to the Word and the Word. Now we were just dealing with regeneration in verse 13. It's abrupt. It doesn't look very smooth. He'll smooth things out when he has more verses, like 21 more chapters to cover these things in detail. But now he just jumps back to the Word that he he sort of left off with in verse 3. Yes, we can see the Word is coming down as the light of the world in the verses following, but where he is specifically identified is the first three verses and those wonderful five statements of fact about him, that he is a member of the Trinity, he has the full deity of God, he has an underived divine nature that was not given to him by any process, by any other person in the Godhead. He alone is the sole creator of all things. Therefore, he is not a creature because he is the creator of all things. And without him was not anything created that was created. He is the eternal God, because in the beginning was the Word. And so John tells us, and the Word. Note very carefully, it was the Word and not the Son that is named here. It doesn't say, and the Son was made flesh. There was no Son before there was flesh. There was only the Word of God. And I don't want to spend my time trying to answer eternal sonship heretics today. If we need time on that, we'll do it next Lord's Day or some other time. Right now, I want to present to you, God has revealed His glory. And it's not in a burning bush or in a burning Mount Sinai. It's not in taking enough fish to sink a rowboat like Peter. Remember Peter? Jesus had so many fish in their net that their boats began to sink. Peter fell at the feet of Jesus and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He saw the glory of God by that little miracle. Can we do better than a few fish in a rowboat? You say, why do you say rowboat? Check out the size of the Sea of Galilee. We get to see the glory of God. Right. And the Word. 
Note, it was the Word, not the Son, that became flesh. There was no Son of God before the Word became flesh. There truly is no Son of God before there is flesh. Without a body, it is the Word of God. With a body, we have Jesus of Nazareth. The Word and the Son are not the same being person without clarification. Word does not equal Son unless you're just generalizing. The Word made flesh equal Son. The Word became the Son by His incarnation in human flesh through Mary. The Son is dependent on both the Word for His divine nature and His human nature from Mary for His existence. The Son was not made flesh because the Son is flesh by His very existence, by birth. The the Word was made flesh. This is part of the great mystery of godliness. What does it say in 1 Timothy 3.16? And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was able to be seen by taking on a body. Wonderful. There isn't a version out there that says that. They say who, which, and he instead of God. And I want to crawl through my monitor and find them. But the Lord will do it. And he does it best. He does it best, like Psalm 36 and verse 12. He'll cast them down and they shall not be able to rise again. Wait till they meet him and he asks them why they took one or two manuscripts to override 500 for 1 Timothy 3.16 and put he in it instead of God. We'll be there. Get ready for it. And it won't be PG-13 for violence. It'll be higher. And I'll enjoy every second of it. God was manifest in the flesh. God appeared, was made visible, was shown, was revealed to men in a human body. That's a great mystery of godliness. And it's, what, it's one thing I want to leave with you today. Jesus Christ in this world was a tremendous fact of history. Was, is an overwhelming, wonderful, precious fact of God's dealings with this world. An event that we ought to remember and reflect upon. Our poor children, whether homeschooled, private schooled, Christian schooled, or public schooled, have to learn so many ridiculous, worthless, vain, and empty facts. They're, all the facts that they learn, all of them combined together, all of a sudden disappear when, in comparison to these words. And the Word was made flesh. You have got to be kidding me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. The Creator God became flesh. The Creator God took on a human body. Yes! And it's called the Incarnation. Not in the Bible. That's just a word that we give to it. And as I wrote you yesterday, you should be able to figure that word out. We'll get to it in a moment. But modern translations take away the word God in 1 Timothy 3.16 and we leave it right where it belongs. This is an incredible event. The Word was in the world and the world was made by Him and the world knew Him not. But we know Him. He's changed us. He's regenerated us. And we're gathered together today in unity 
That we know the identity of the Son of God. That we believe on Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God. That we will obey Him. That He is coming for us. That He lives for us. And that we love Him. And that's why we have a church. Because of this verse. Giving us the head of our church. The Savior of the body. The cornerstone of our building. Our King. Our Lord. The Judge of all flesh. The Word was made flesh. The first movie that I ever watched way back in the 1960s. I went to a friend's house. My poor father didn't know what was happening. We stayed up all night. Paul may have been with me. Saw a movie that's had a retake in the last five or ten years. The movie was entitled The Day the Earth Stood Still. Well, to a kid that had never seen a movie in his life, I sat there memorized, mesmerized watching this spaceship visit Earth. And you know, the, the door dropped down and this man stiffly walks out of it and the poor little woman that becomes his friend. And Paul, do you remember? Your memory's too good, brother. You're, I... So the world wants to make the movie over again. They did. Just a few years ago, they made it over again. They get so excited at this vanity. This stupid idiot that walks out of this spaceship and thinks he can do something to the earth. They get excited about it. But when we get excited about the glory of God, they think that we're deranged. We've come unhinged. We've come unglued. What are you so excited about? Because an event took place in John 1.14 where it is described and 2,000 years ago that transcends all their imaginations about big events happening to this planet. And wait till he comes the next time. They're going to send their drones at him. Won't that be fun? I hope they have some really good drones in the Air Force. It'll be fun to watch a man snipping them out of the air. If he takes his time to do it, he'll probably just speak a word. And as we sing in a mighty fortress is our God, the whole place will melt with fervent heat. Why all the fuss about asinine nothing? Isaiah seven fourteen says, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Matthew one twenty three tells us, Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God with us. God with us. God dwelling among us. We handled him, John said. Can you tell John's excitement and the doctrinal intention of those words in 1 John chapter 1? We saw him. We looked upon him. We heard him. We touched him. We handled him. I was the one that got to lean in his bosom at supper. Yeah, that's in John's gospel. He's talking about himself. He was excited. He was thankful. We ought to be excited that we can read verses like that in John chapter 13, 1 John chapter 1, and see God on earth in a body. It's an incredible event. 
Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 describing our first few words, and the Word was made flesh. God was manifest in flesh. God with us. Now Colossians chapter 2 is going to word it a little differently. We want to put some of these verses together. Verse 8, Colossians 2 and verse 8, Beware, beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, does that sound like the three G's? Men have worshipped the idiots of Athens for 3,000 years. Beware, lest any man spoil you, corrupt you, make you rot, ruin you, take advantage of you. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We want everything Christ-centered. All our doctrine better be Christ-centered. And our doctrines that we chiefly love and want to defend the most are about Jesus Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That tells us right there what we're supposed to believe about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Did He have a real body? Yes. It's called flesh in John 1.14. It's called a body right here. How much of the Godhead was there? A begotten God? A God? Or the God? How about the fullness of the Godhead? You can't say it any better than that. It can't be said better. And for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We are not going to allow any doctrine of emanations, whether they use that word or not, from Greek Gnosticism to infect, affect our doctrine of Jesus Christ. God, the Word. Everything we've learned about the Word in the past few Sundays from John chapter 1 became flesh, was made flesh. He came in and took possession of a human body. The combination being the God-man Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is our Savior, our Lord. This man was on earth for 33 and a half years. He ascended right out of this earth's atmosphere through the clouds past the atmosphere, above the clouds, through the interstellar spaces, into the presence of God. And He's coming again in like manner. In flaming fire with His mighty angels to wreak vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I say we want to know God. We want to know His glory, embrace His glory, and especially love His Son because He has testified and witnessed of His Son that Jesus of Nazareth is His Son and our only Savior in hope. God is a Spirit. Back to John 1.14, God is a Spirit. Jesus had a body. Jesus Christ is God, but God is not Jesus. I could say little statements like this all day, trying to help you understand the difference of what we believe and what some others believe. We just want to believe what the Bible tells us. We just want to take these words and believe them. And the Word was made flesh. And it tells us what that was like. The fullness of the Godhead was in a human body. And so that human body had to dwell someplace, needed an address, needed a bed, needed a kitchen. And so he dwelt with the apostles. And so it says in the Word of God, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's called incarnation 
because carne in European languages means flesh or meat, carne, carnivore. And so incarnation means in, in flesh, in a body, God came to earth. The word isn't in the Bible, but the, but the word means what the Bible says. There's other words that theologians come up with to make it all complicated, just like doctors, pharmacists, and others do to keep you subject to them. Uh, they call it the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, that's the union between the divine and human natures of the Lord Jesus Christ in one person. God is a spirit. The Bible tells us that, John 4, 24, God is a spirit. And yet, for Jesus, a body was prepared for him, Hebrews ten five. Jesus Christ is fully God. Before Abraham was, I am, John eight fifty eight. But Jesus also was fully touched with all the feelings of our infirmities. In Hebrews 4.15, nothing was changed by the union. He was still fully God. He was still fully man, but without sin. He is not fully Jesus Christ, the Son of God, without his body. Jesus, after he rose from the dead, appeared to his apostles and said, Come on, touch me. A spirit hath not flesh and bones. I'm here, and I've got flesh and bones. If we don't believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, what are we? Antichrist. If we do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, what are we? Antichrist. If we do not believe the proper relationship between the Father and the Son, what are we? Antichrist. Who said that? This writer. In 1 John 2, 1 John 3, and 2 John. Right. We've already been over those verses. Before the word was flesh in Jesus, God did not have a son but by covenant promise. Just like he didn't have you, except by covenant promise. Did he know your name? It was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Hadn't he chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world? We weren't there. Christ wasn't there. It was all by covenant because the word of God was going to come and take on human flesh as part of the everlasting covenant, the basis of which we are saved. The Son was not made flesh. The Son did not exist until the Word was flesh. God works by covenant, just like I explained to you. There's no Son in the Old Testament. The only mentions of a Son in the Old Testament are very, very few, like Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, are prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ that still needed several hundred years to run before they'd be fulfilled. Don't tell me about the Son of God that was in the fiery furnace with Daniel's three friends. That was nothing but an angel. And the only opinion that thought it was a form like the Son of God was a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. So we don't go there for our theology. And there will be more to say on that in the future. God did not speak to Israel by his Son until Jesus was born. I don't care what men want to preach to you about Christophanies in the Old Testament. There is no Christophany. There's God appearing. There's the angel of the Lord appearing. But there's no appearing of Jesus Christ. The flesh body prepared for Jesus was chosen from David's family tree. The New Testament is very careful about that because the Old Testament is filled with prophecies that the Messiah of God, the Messiah of Israel, would be a son of David in many places. And so the Bible tells us he was made according to the flesh of the seed of David. This flesh that's described right here where it just says flesh was the flesh of of David. David and Bathsheba had a number of children. The second child that they had was named Solomon, and God loved him, and Joseph came through Solomon. Joseph was the legal father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mary was through another son of David and Bathsheba named Nathan. And that genealogy is given in Luke 3. So Jesus is the son of David by covenant promise because God was his father. Biologically, because Mary was out of David's loins. Legally, because Joseph was out of David's loins by two different sons of David. That's pretty thorough to be called the son of David. David is one of God's favorites. There's more written about David, like I've said to you many times, than the next ten men that are written about in the Bible. And a David came to earth. And a David sits on David's throne. And a David is ruling over the kingdom of God right now. And even in Ezekiel, he is called David without the words son of. He's just flat out called David. He's the real David. If any of you read Psalm 89 last night, it said, I have found one among the people that is mighty upon whose shoulders I can put the weight of this kingdom. He shall be my firstborn. That's not quite David. And it's not quite Solomon. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's our king. He knows us. He loves us. He died for us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus had to have a literal and real flesh, bone, blood, body in order to die for us. He did not take upon himself the nature of an angel. Angels have pretty impressive natures, don't they? He did not take upon himself the nature of an angel. He took upon himself the nature of the seed of Abraham. He looked like Abraham. He looked like one of us. And it tells us he took flesh and blood on because he had to die. Spirits can't die. Spirits can't shed blood. So the Lord Jesus Christ took a body on for those reasons. The Bible is filled with it. And it involved a woman. Anytime someone wants to talk to you about the sonship of Jesus Christ, ask them who his eternal mother was. Because God sent forth his son made of a woman. And he dwelt among us. You know, there are men that like to take the Greek underlying the word dwelt and come up with the word tent, come up with the word encamp, come up with the word tabernacle. Go back to the Old Testament and show you, see how the tabernacle had the glory of God fill it, and now there's a new body in the New Testament, the glory of God filled it, and I don't believe any of that stuff. I don't go there. I look at the word dwelt, and I know what it means. In English, it means he lived among us. He had an address, and he ate and drank, and walked around, and we fished, and we, we made fish sandwiches on the seashore together. That's what it means. I could play games with you all day and you would sit there, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, yeah. And I'm lying. Did the glory of God fill a tabernacle into the Old Testament? In a certain sense, was Jesus' body a temple? Yes, he said, destroy this body and in three days I'll raise it up again. But there was a whole lot more than that and it's not included in the word dwelt. He dwelt among us. Look at Matthew 2.23. Very quickly for the word dwelt. Just, it's, such, it's such a small point. Matthew 2.23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Is that the only place he was a tent? And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken with the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. You know, there's a denomination today called the Nazarenes. But none of them ever grew up in Nazareth. It's not wrong to be called a Nazarene. Paul was called a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes 
because they were following a Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. If you lived in Nazareth, if you were raised in Nazareth, you were called a Nazarene. A Nazarene is not a Nazarite. A Nazarite are those following the rules of Numbers chapter 6 by taking a special oath upon them. They're entirely separate and unrelated. And so it says, Jesus came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Did he, did he pop a tent out and drive stakes down? Don't, sorry. Sometimes preparation is painful. We love 1 John 1 that tells us about that dwelling, that among the apostles they were to look upon him, they were able to see him, they were able to hear him and handle him, and John tells us those things very plainly. God doesn't dwell on earth because he says, earth is my footstool, I dwell in heaven. And the earth is my footstool, but Jesus came and dwelt down here. Let's never forget that by Jesus Christ's death, God comes and dwells in us. That is, that is just incredible oh, to think about that. We beheld his glory. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Beheld. Past tense of behold. It means to hold, to keep in view, to watch, to regard or contemplate with the eyes, to look upon, to look at. 52 verses, uses of it in the Bible just like that. If the word of God was beheld, seen by human eyes, he was more than God. In that he had taken on human flesh and a body that could be seen. Because God can't be seen. And John's going to tell us that in just four verses. In verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Jesus Christ, by His life, by His teaching, by His doctrine, by His death, by His never-ending life, declares to us what God is. That set of characteristics and character traits and the conduct of His life reveal to us as much about God as we can handle. The glory of one of the Trinity would annihilate any man looking on Him if He wasn't to protect Him by only showing His backsides. Or sustaining him. What glory was beheld? Remember John said in 1 John 5, 6-8, through 8, when John listed the Trinity, John said that there were three that bore witness and record of Jesus Christ being the Son of God. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. Did those three bear record that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God? At His baptism... Did God say from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased? Yes. Did the Spirit of God come down and dwell on Him? Yes. Did the Spirit of God, which was given to Him without measure, give Him power to do things no one else could do? Yes. At His death, did God arrange events like the tearing of the veil in the temple and an earthquake and the opening of tombs and the darkness over the whole earth for three hours that caused the Roman centurion and others with him in charge of that crucifixion to declare, truly, surely, this man was the Son of God. The first miracle that Jesus did in chapter 2 and verse 11 was the first display of His glory. It tells us there, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus stayed in one place in order to give Lazarus enough time to die. Was he a loving friend? Be careful with your answer. Yes, he was a loving friend. 
but he did it for the glory of God, it tells us. These are all visible displays of the glory of Jesus Christ, well seen by men and written down by the apostles that were eyewitnesses of the word. You know that it says that in Luke chapter 1? They were eyewitnesses of the word. Right. Eyewitnesses of the word made flesh. They may have heard the written word preached. They may have heard the written word read. But they were eyewitnesses of the word made flesh. And that's what they wrote about. However, there's an event that we can't forget. Uh, and we want to look at Luke's account of it in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. It's, it's an incredible fact in large, in toto, of God visiting earth for 33 and a half years. But there were particular events during his life and at the time of his death and his resurrection that are special themselves, and this is one of them. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory, and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter saith unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. Not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. Rightly so. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And Amen. Back to John chapter 1. Did they behold His glory? See, John was one of those three that got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and Peter and see the glory of God. But the glory of God was visibly demonstrated during the three and a half years of our Lord. The opening event, the commencing event of His baptism, the concluding event of His death, and then His resurrection, and then His ascension into heaven. All those declared His glory. And the Mount of Transfiguration. And the turning of water into wine. And the raising of Lazarus. They beheld His glory. The glory of what? The only begotten Son of God. The only man ever to have God as His Father and a woman as His mother. Only begotten Son of God. Only one without companions or society. Solitary, lonely, one of a kind. Begotten. Past participle of beget. To procreate, to generate. Usually said of the Father. Amen. The only begotten of the Father. They saw the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Games played with this phrase are legion. And from the same evil source, they are learned in seminary where men fall on their faces to adore origenistic heresy and philosophy. From the Greeks about emanations. That there was some eternal generation or begetting of God in eternity past. That the Word of God 
as the Son of God, was generated in eternity. No, He wasn't generated in eternity. He was the Word of God generating all else in eternity, creating all else in eternity. This, this is talking about when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. What were they looking at when they were beholding the only begotten of the Father? Were they looking at the Word eternally generated? No, they were looking at Jesus of Nazareth. This is one of the reasons we're not Reformed Baptists. It's one of the reasons we're not Primitive Baptists. We're going to stick with Scripture about the identity of the Son of God. Is there anything more important doctrinally in the New Testament than who is the Son of God? Where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Matthew 16? Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? They try this and they try that and they try this and... Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, Peter. And that's why we don't go to seminary. To end up in the cemetery called the Congregation of the Dead in the Bible. We go to the Word of God to find out that the Son of God is Jesus of Nazareth. The whole issue can be boiled down to the simple question, answer, who is the Son of God? Jesus of Nazareth. Thank you. The whole doctrinal thing is settled. That's the Son of God. The Word is not the Son. The Word made flesh is the Son. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Well, how was He begotten? Look at Luke chapter 1. He wasn't here until He took on flesh. Where did He get His flesh from? And was there a woman involved? There's always a woman involved in getting your flesh. When there's a begetting described, you say, Adam, Adam didn't have a mommy, and Adam wasn't begotten. But when a daddy begets a son, there's a woman involved. Luke chapter 1, we love these verses. Verse 26, sorry, I want to read the context. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. This was an incredible event. And in the sixth month... That is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Do you love all those words? Are you offended and irritated that I read the context? I hope not. Verse 34, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be? 
seeing I know not a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. So God fathered a child through the womb of Mary, using her egg from David's family tree for his flesh and his body that was broken, torn, and blood was shed for the redemption of our souls, and which body is now glorified in heaven with a golden girdle about the paps, and he has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like burning brass, and a two-edged sword for a word picture coming out of his mouth by which he will slay the nations. This is our Savior. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Only begotten is an expression used only by John and Paul. Paul only uses it once and doesn't apply it to Jesus. He applied it to Isaac. In Hebrews chapter 11, he refers to Isaac as the only begotten son of Abraham. How many sons did Abraham have? Eight. One by Hagar. One by Sarah. Six by Keturah. How is he the only begotten son? Because he's the only son by promise, the only son by God's power, and the only son through Sarah. Why is Jesus called the only begotten son of God? The only son by promise, the only son by God's power, through a virgin of David. The only begotten son of God. Made of a woman. Was Jesus the woman's seed? Of Genesis 3.15? Indeed. Full of grace and truth. Grace only occurs four times in the Gospel of John, and they're right here in front of you, right here. Right here, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, grace for grace. Verse 17, grace and truth. The only four times in the whole Gospel, in all of his epistles, does he ever use the word grace. Now, he uses truth about 50 times in his gospel and his epistles. But Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Right. When men saw the glory of God in the Old Testament, it was bright. It was fiery. It was threatening. It was loud. It was sparkly. Are you with me? It was all those kind of things. Bright, light, sparkling, fire, fire enfolding upon itself, the colors of a rainbow, emeralds, uh, uh, minerals, jewels, gold, brightness, shining. These are the words that are used in the Bible for the glory of God. But when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, what was He full of reflecting the glory of God? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now, God did let Moses get a closer glimpse of God's glory in Exodus chapter 34 in answer to his prayer, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God did show him his glory. And what did he get to hear? 
he got to hear the name of the Lord declared that God is merciful. God is gracious. Brother Aaron communicated one of those or two of those verses to us earlier this morning. Jesus was full of grace and truth. God's grace is in his will, but his grace was obtained and given to us through Jesus Christ. One of the favorite series of messages I have ever preached in my life, and that doesn't mean anything necessarily, was the unsearchable riches of Christ of a year ago. The unsearchable riches of Christ. God's grace is in the Lord Jesus Christ in giving us the gift of His Son to die for our sins, redeem us from all iniquity, purify unto Himself a peculiar people, obtain for us heaven, give us the gifts of the New Testament, and He's coming for us soon to give us our full inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth. Not only is our Lord full of grace, but He has given that grace to us. Grace for grace. To us. The immediate comparison in verse 17 is to the law of Moses. So we are understanding the new dispensation of the New Testament compared to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament just condemned men. Keep this law and live. No man could keep it. All men were going to die. The law entered that the offense might abound. But grace comes through the Lord Jesus Christ that might reign unto eternal life. It tells us that right there. I know in verse 15 you've got John the Baptist quoted, but then John goes right back in verse 16 with continuing what he said. He said, Jesus is full of grace and truth. And here's John taking up again in verse 16. And of His fullness, of that full measure of grace and truth, have all we received. And grace for grace. It's just grace piled on grace when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus could have come as an angry judge. John 3.17 is going to tell us He didn't. 1 Timothy, 4, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14-16 through 16 tell us that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Grace is demerited favor. Think of how the Word of God could have come to this planet. But He came full of grace and truth. The rosary in its Hail Mary is blasphemous. Do you know how the, the rosary prayer starts off? The Hail Mary prayer that you pray ten times to every time you pray our Father? Mark, remember with me. Hail Mary, full of grace. What does that do to you? What do you think about the Pope of Rome when you see Pope Frank in his white pajamas? Hail Mary, full of grace. Mary had no grace. She needed a gracious Savior as much as anyone else. Thus she said when she met Elizabeth, I have rejoiced in God my Savior. She needed a Savior that was full of grace. And she gives grace to no one. Full of grace and truth. How about the woman of Samaria? How many Jewish men had ever talked to her in her life? None. What did this one have to say to her? I can give you a drink of water and you'll never thirst again. And she told him all things that she had ever done in her opinion. She said, I perceive that thou art a prophet. What graciousness. And when she went into the city, when she came back, he could have been gone. That's what Jews would have done. Especially when the disciples were saying, what are you doing talking to her? And he was still there. And he preached, and he stayed there several days. 
How's that for grace? Amen. How about the woman taken in adultery in the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 that are highly questioned in most other Bible versions? Was he full of grace and truth? Amen. How about his kindness to Lazarus and his two sisters? How about the man born blind? How about washing the feet of his apostles? How about the prayer he prayed in John 17? And how about his treatment of Peter? Full of grace. But most of that grace is in the redemption of eternal life when he hung on the cross for us. And he went and did his Father's will and had his body broken. He came with truth as well. You know, we have verse 17 telling us what kind of truth is primarily under consideration. And it's the truth of the New Testament versus the shadows and obscurity of the Old Testament Paul, Paul described the Old Testament as beggarly, carnal, elementary, rudimentary, sensual, worldly, weak, uh, among other adjectives for the Old Testament. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, Woman, believe me, your people in Samaria don't have a clue about what they're worshiping because salvation is of the Jews. However, they're not going to be worshiping in truth in Jerusalem either. Because see, there was a transition taking place during 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. called the time of Reformation, spoken of in Hebrews chapter 9, when Jesus brought in the new covenant. John introduced it, Jesus continued it, and then he told his apostles, get out of Jerusalem and Judea and preach this message to the Gentiles. And so that time of Reformation took place. And so Jesus could tell the woman of Samaria, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit, an internal religion, not located in Jerusalem, not located on Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans, in spirit and in truth. New Testament truth. New Testament revelation that we have in these 27 books of the New Testament, primarily the epistles of Paul to us. I get so sick of hearing from Sabbatarians who want to write to me and tell us that our church has failed in one point. They love our website but we need to start worshiping on the day that God gave for worship. And that's Saturday, the seventh day of the week. And I always write back, I've told you before, dear friend, we are New Testament Christians following the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And anytime you would like to become a Christian, please contact us and I would be glad to help you. Stinking Sabbatarians. Going back to the Old Testament, weak, beggarly, carnal elements of that Paul said in Hebrews 8:13, look what it's called. It's called old and the, this one's called new. Do you know what that means? By that word definitions, that thing needs to be thrown away. That's what he said, Hebrews 8:13. Right. It's one of our one-word arguments. Cuz he's he's basing it off the definition of a word that had been used in Jeremiah chapter 31. Truth. If ye continue in the truth, then are ye my disciples indeed. John chapter 8. Why do you not understand the truth? Even because you cannot hear my word. Why do you not receive me? Because I tell you the truth. Pilate, are you a king? You got it. And for this purpose I came into the world that I should bear witness of the truth. Pilate, the highly educated, appointed governor of Judea, answered from all of his classes of philosophy that he had taken in, in Rome, said, what is truth? Well, you were looking at it because Jesus said, I am the truth. He is the faithful and true witness. He's the minister of God to Israel for the truth, Romans 15, verse 8. 
What a difference in the covenants that were made on that event of the Lord Jesus Christ being made flesh here in this world. God in his glory has been revealed to us. God has testified of his son. A transcendent event took place that we just read about in one little verse of John chapter 1. Believe or else. Repent or else. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead. Obey or else. Love or else. But you should want to believe. Without him, life is entirely hopeless and insane. He gives meaning, value, truth to our existence, to the planet, to the universe. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. He only can save from sin and hell. Believe on him. Believe God's record of him. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Full of glory is God's only begotten Son. Sitting in glory now. Dwelling in a light that no man can approach unto. In his divine nature, sitting in heaven, he's coming for us. And he is a king. He is a king. Our Lord. The head of our church. The bishop of our souls. Our great shepherd. He dictates how we should have our marriages. And so after our break, we'll come back and look at some of his rules for marriage. Because he's told us how we ought to live as married people. If we believe that the glory of God exists, that God has revealed that glory in his Son, that the new covenant is full of grace and truth, then let's receive that grace that he's already bestowed upon us and practice truth in our marriages by his divine power. May Jesus Christ be praised.